You're listening to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you conversations for the health of all things. In these special episodes, I am joined by guests on the show to explore how the osteopathic concept presents in their lives and learn about their personal and professional stories. Ranging from osteopathic physicians to those familiar with osteopathic treatment to those associated with osteopathic medicine in a variety of settings, these conversations provide new perspective on lighting the way for the path to best health. Please note that while I am a physician and may interview other physicians, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey, back with an episode of Conversations for the Health of All Things. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kim Fisher. She is a board-certified physician anesthesiologist and an advanced care planning coach in Denver. She's passionate about helping people have crucial conversations with their loved ones so that they will always get the medical care that matches their values. As an advanced care planning coach, Dr. Fisher helps families feel reassured, prepared, and empowered to navigate end-of-life issues with confidence. I'm so glad to have you join me here today. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's start with your story into medicine. How did you enter into medicine in general and choose your specialty in anesthesia? Sure. So my father is a physician. And so I was surrounded by medicine growing up and loved going with him to go on rounds and worked at his office um, and really enjoyed being around him and watching his relationship with his patients. And then when I went to college, I decided I wanted to have my own uh, experience and and not participate in medicine. And so I actually did Teach for America after college. And during that first year, um, recognized how much respect I have for teachers and how they have the hardest job in the world. Um, And that was pre-COVID. And um, really realized that the way I wanted to help people was by being a physician. And so I went and did a post-bac and interestingly met a lot of other um, people in my post-bac who were women whose father was a physician who had all decided they weren't going to do that either. And here we were all now doing post-bacs after college to try to get into medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to medical school in New York and did all my training there. And I actually started as a primary care uh, trainee and transitioned into anesthesia, wanting to um, care for one patient at a time, wanting to be able to treat things immediately and liking the pace of the OR a bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And having to navigate that, and it resonates with me so much, you know, I was always going to be a doctor and then switched to my major in college. And then it was actually in the first part of college where I said, nope, I had to head back there. And so how do you notice that magnetism that pulls you back? You know, what allowed you to answer that call more wholeheartedly when you did make that shift and pause and then return? Yeah, you know, I think I saw... I saw how my dad was able to help people and I saw the relationship that he was able to have. Um, and I think um, for myself, I wasn't finding that as a teacher, I wasn't connecting in that same way. And so wanting to, to 
find that feeling, uh, I looked back to medicine where I had seen it. I had seen the example. Um, uh, I had, uh, I knew that I could find it there. And so that brought me back. And I think I also recognized for myself that um, my strengths were more in line with medicine than in um, teaching. Uh, So it was like a coming home. It was like, that's a feeling that I know and a feeling that I wanted to have. And I think it was also important for me to decide it on my own. Um, It seemed very obvious that I would go into medicine and I wanted to really make that choice for me as opposed to it being made for me. Mm -hmm. So important for it to be a decision and not a default, right? And let that come in that way. Do you see anything that you pulled from that time in Teach for America and in that post-back interval that really helped you, maybe supported your journey into medicine more fully? Yeah, I think having worked um, prior to going into medical school was really important, especially once um, in third year, I found myself on the wards and interacting with patients and um, being able to have pulled from experiences outside of the hospital felt really important in how I connected to my patients and also how I showed up as a professional on my team. So I'm really grateful that I had had that time um, outside of uh, outside of medicine and having worked. And also as a post-bac, you know, it meant that we were older students and a lot of us, myself included, kind of had some side hustles. Uh, and so again, interactions with different kinds of people to allow me, I think, to uh, better interact with my patients once I got onto the wards. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a minute more about how you switched from being in primary care to anesthesia? We're recording this in the midst of kind of rank time and match week for students going into residency. And it can sometimes think, seem that if I don't get the right thing now, you know, I'm stuck with it forever. It's not going to be right. And I swear I've heard more stories of people switching (laughs) than going straight through the original choice. How did you make that decision and how did you find the opportunity to make that shift? Yeah. Um, so I tell every resident now that I work with, um, deep breath that you, this is not the end all be all decision that there's always an opportunity to transition to something else. I will tell you, I personally didn't know that. Um, I think I found myself in primary care and, um, internal medicine because I had an incredible sub I experience and I loved the attending that I worked with in the team. Um, and when as a med student, it seemed to make sense for me. And when I became an intern, I very quickly on July 2nd realized, ooh, (laughs) this may not be the best place for me. And so, you know, some of it was the intern experience in general. Um, And I waited till around February. And to the real credit to my program director at the time, he allowed me on my elective to kind of find something else that would bring me joy. And so I rotated with a few different specialties and I went to um, the operating room and rotated with the anesthesiologists and I really enjoyed it and thought, ah, this feels better. And I didn't feel that way as a, as a uh, medical student when I was rotating in the OR. In fact, I thought all they did was raise the bed up and down. Um, <laughs> and so, but I think I had a different perspective once when I was an intern and I was going there and I was looking at, looking at it with, uh, through a different lens. And so I think um, my program director giving me that space to say, it's okay to switch really allowed me to do that. And then I got very 
lucky. Um, it was fortuitous. A person was leaving the residency program that I was then able to get a spot in. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those sliding door moments, as we see in big gratitude, I had the same experience. I switched, you know, made the decision midway through intern year and then switched my second year specialties and same, had a program director who it's a loss for them, right? When you're a quality resident and it matters to their program, but to be able to give you that blessing and space is so gracious. And not everyone has that opportunity, but how nice that you can pay it forward and reassure the residents with whom you work now that that is possible. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think, I don't remember anyone telling me that. I don't know if you had that experience as well, but I didn't know it was an option and it really is. And it does happen all the time. And so Mm -hmm. if it doesn't work, you try again and you try something else. Mm -hmm. And I hope our students and residents, even attendings listening, right? There's always room to make those shifts. So we're never stuck where we might not be fully comfortable or fully ourselves and trusting that intuition, right? Listening for when it is simply hard work, like you said, intern year can be just generally uncomfortable. But when it is that icky feeling, when it doesn't seem to line up, it's not congruent with what you're meant to be doing to really tune into that. Right. So talk us through how you've made this transition or perhaps added on into this advanced care planning coaching. Yes. So I'm adding it on at the moment. Um, You know, I have noticed that so many families have not had crucial conversations about um, how they want uh, their life to be at the end of their life. And I notice this all the time um, in patients where maybe the patient can't speak for themselves at this point and a family member is now burdened with having to make decisions um, or a friend who didn't even know they were the designated healthcare proxy is making decisions for someone and they are full of grief and shame and confusion. And I have seen that had a conversation happened while that patient was able to express what was important to them, I believe that that healthcare proxy would have been able to speak for that person and also to not feel all that terrible burden. And so what I want to do is help people be prepared and reassured to speak for their loved ones. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to give people who are still healthy and still living at home and um, having full lives at any age, the opportunity to really explore what matters to you Mm -hmm. and what matters and how you live and what brings you joy and what does a great day look like. And I want them to tell that to their healthcare proxy. So their healthcare proxy has a basis and is able to speak for them and is not just guessing and, and really left unsure. Mm-hmm. That's so important. And we often talk in medicine about, do you have the forms filled out? But right, that's one piece. You know, That's a formality that helps with the medical record. But the actual decision-making and empowerment and clarity are really what gets lost in that shuffle of paperwork. So you have the conversation with both the person right, and the people who are assigned to those roles. Correct. Yeah. And, and just to comment on the paperwork, you know, that paperwork was initially designed to document a conversation. And unfortunately, it's now become that it's just a document and people think, well, I've signed my name. I've checked the checkboxes. 
I have no idea what the checkboxes mean, but I've checked them. So I must be good and my family's good and I have a plan. And I always caution people, well, <laughs> does anybody know what that document says? Can they, do they understand your, your wishes and have you really sat down and, and um, had a deep dive into this? So I always think that's important. The document is there to just say we've had the conversation, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Um, Absolutely. And so much happens in medicine that way, right? The original intention is there. And then the iterations, kind of the telephone game, we lose sight at that original purpose. And so many of the tasks that we have, and then they seem less purposeful. And so to bring that back, I think is so important. Yeah, yeah. And to answer your question, what I do is I facilitate conversations. What I find is for a lot of people that they want to have this conversation, they don't know where to start. They don't know what questions to ask. They're afraid to ask the first question, which is completely reasonable. Um, They uh, don't want to offend someone by asking the questions. And so what I do is I bring um, either a family together or an individual and their own healthcare proxy who could be another family member, a friend. And we take that individual through a list of questions um, and allow the healthcare proxy to hear the responses and to ask any clarifying questions. And so we initially go through uh, what your values are around living and how you live and what makes life uh, joyful for you. And then we also go through what are things that you would not tolerate. And, and we also talk about how would you envision your death, right? Giving, um, giving language to death. It happens to all of us. It's going to happen to all of us. And I actually find that people feel so much more relaxed after they have talked about their death and shared how they want to die. And they know that someone knows what their wishes are. And this conversation that feels so fearful and big is is fearful and big. It, it can have that, but it's also loving. I've seen it connect families. I've seen it connect friends. Um, and uh, people walk away feeling like it was very meaningful and worthwhile as well. Mm-hmm. And to give air to it, to give light to it, because we might be having all of these thoughts and wondering first, is it strange to even think about that? Should I be processing this? And to open up the space to be able to review it, to speak it, and maybe, right, getting clarity, because perhaps you haven't really sorted through what you'd want that to look like, because it seems taboo to even consider what have you found to be the most successful ways to engage in that conversation to kind of grant that permission to it's okay to explore, right? It's okay to get it wrong, you know, and to reframe it. How do you open that up for patients? Um, well, for patients and for clients also, I think um, I, I do say just that it's okay to be afraid. And I've also noticed that by starting big and starting with the light and airy questions of, you know, what does a good day look like for you? I've found that that gets people thinking about their life um, in a in a way that brings them happiness and joy so that when we do have to go into some of the deeper parts of what would you not tolerate, I can always bring it back to, that's right, you wouldn't tolerate this because you told me that being on the floor and playing with your grandchildren or being with your spouse is the most important thing to you or communicating or hearing the joke at the dinner table and being able to laugh. And so by talking about the things that make it make us feel happy in the beginning and bring us joy, I'm always able to come back to that. And so I think it takes away some of that fear. Mm -hmm. 
And how about the conversation facilitation between the two when there are divergent expectations? Do you find that you're helping to navigate that space or does having the conversation make it less contentious, less so that there is that misunderstanding or, you know, battling of expectations? I haven't found it contentious. What I have found interesting is people who are um, married, for example, and they hear their spouse say something and there's this pause of, oh, that's what you would want. I didn't know that. I wouldn't have ever thought that. And I think that's what I found to be interesting. Um, or, or there are expectations. For example, I also ask people to think about how they would want their life celebrated after they've died. And so we talk about where would you want to have um, your funeral and what would it look like? Is it a party? What music is playing? Or how are you buried? And I just recently worked with a family where the two children, adult children said, oh, we plan this. We know exactly what you want. We know the songs. And the mom actually said, oh no, I want different songs. And actually I, this is the exact rendition of the song that I want. <laughs> um, and it was this great moment between them because I think it showed also we have these thoughts and expectations, but unless we share them, we don't know. And I think, um, you know, uh, both of the kids in that situation felt great that they now know exactly what their mom wants. And I think their mom also felt really reassured to know that her wishes are known and those songs are going to play hopefully very far in the future. They will though. And everyone heard it. And the nice thing is, is that I actually videotape these conversations and mm -hmm. the goal of videotaping them is so that in case we forget um, what someone has said, we can go back. It's admissible in court. And also it allows, um, for families to hear the voice together in case there's some confusion or disagreement amongst family members um, in terms of what someone else would want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a great point. And allowing us to rehear it, especially when we know emotions are high when someone has recently died. And so to come back and get some of those factual concepts back down. Exactly. How would someone find you? How do you enter into this conversation? Is there a natural segue? Is there a referral? you know, from perhaps a geriatrician? Do you find some relationships that lend themselves to this work? Yeah, so I'm building this practice as we speak. Um, I'm working right now with lawyers and financial planners because what I've found is that they are preparing a lot of these documents. And while the intentions are wonderful, I do think that um, having someone that has some experience with healthcare and recognizes the questions that are important to ask, be involved in uh, filling out this paperwork. And so right now, um, when I partner with an estate planning attorney, they do all of the paperwork and they can offer my services up as an addition to bring everyone together and have a conversation. I do also think that there's a role for this with a physician, especially a geriatrician who's busy and has 15 minutes. These conversations have been taking about an hour and a half to two hours. Mm -hmm. They're really deep. It takes that long, I think, to really get this information. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, I definitely think that that is an option. Um, you know, people can find me through uh, some of the community webinars that I'm doing. Um, and so we're kind of talking about death over drinks and cocktails and then can go deeper into it together with their family uh, on a more individual basis. 
Mm-hmm. And I hear in here health, right? So we think of death and we often think end of health, but it's really just a continuum, right? It's an extension of life. And even, I want to say the completion, right? Because we have different iterations of what happens beyond. What do you notice about engaging with all parts of health in there? Mind, body, spirit. I imagine in these conversations and someone's talking about a good day, all of those may come into play, what they can do physically, how they're engaged mentally and how they're feeling spiritually. Do you see those come up? Very much. And those are a part of my questions because I agree with you. Um, We want to live a good life all the way to the end. And part of the dying process is living. You are still very much alive. alive. And so that mind-body-spirit connection and honoring that and speaking to how you want that to be honored and what your goals are for each of those parts is really important. So my questions always address that. And I think it's important actually that the individual answers those questions for themselves and shares that with their loved one who will be speaking for them. Because I think, you know, when we offer treatments to people, we're very good about offering the risks and benefits. What we're not good about doing is saying, how is this going to affect their mind? How will they, how are they, how will their body feel afterwards? Um, Is this in line with how their soul wants to feel and be in this world? And I think those are the questions I try to encourage the healthcare proxies to always know the know the answer to and to ask whoever is offering a treatment so that they can make sure that every treatment um, is in line with what this person would want. Mm -hmm. How great that this continues the conversation in that direction. So when they are nearing the more active end of life care that they or their healthcare proxy can be in that advocacy space and have a little more knowledge in that conversation to say, wait a minute, you know, are we choosing this for the right reasons and will it have the outcome we're hoping for knowing we can't ever make a true guarantee, but we can make our best judgment in that space. That's really Correct. powerful. Yeah. I noticed too, we're putting into play structure for optimal function and it can seem a little stiff, right? To put it into the space at the end of life care, but so important as well, like you said, to continue this good living all the way through. And like you said, it's a form, but it's also the conversation that supports that. How do you notice the importance of that framework in this space to optimize the function of the experience. Ask me that one more time. So we're looking at structure and function, right? So optimal structure improves function. If we talk about the osteopathic tenants and the structure right here is the form, right? And the video and the conversation, you're laying this lattice work so that there can be this functional death in a way, something we might not often think about. How do you see that coming into play? It looks like architecture, you know, so we're putting in place this building, this structure that supports the experience of the individual and their proxy and family. Mm. I see people having more deaths that are in line with um, what their wishes are. Um, I hopefully see people dying in places that they would choose to die in as opposed to potentially um, in a hospital. You know, everyone that I have worked with has said that their preference would be to not die in a hospital. And yet 80% of people are. Um, And so I think by laying this um, groundwork for even having the family be aware of something simple like that will hopefully change um, 
the experience of death for that individual and also for the healthcare proxy and that they then will also do this own work for themselves. Um, my goal is also that we are talking about death more and so, and acknowledging it. And as a reality, we plan for our birth we, um, and the birth of our, rather the birth of our children and planning for our death also feels appropriate. Um, and again, uh, something that can actually bring us a lot of peace and allow us to live fuller. And I also hope that it's, this is helping physicians. And I mean, physicians who are in the hospital who are working with patients, trying to have them make decisions. And if they could have family members and healthcare proxies and advocates that come in and say, no, you know, mom told me the most important thing is that she is at home and that she is cognitively aware and that she is gardening. And these are what bring her joy. And if they can make treatment decisions together in a faster way, I actually think that that's going to lead to less moral injury and burnout for my physician colleagues and other colleagues who are in the hospital. So I'm hoping that's what this work does as well. Absolutely. And it can seem a bit much to go there, but also important to notice we may save a lot of days in the hospital, right? A lot of those end-of-life healthcare dollars, not that it's not worthwhile or valuable, but at the same time, if it's not in alignment, we're often put in these spaces and then we just keep going because it's that we're here. And so we might as well, right, just keep doing this or it's hard to make that shift. And so to be able to, again, cognizantly go into that situation is so important. They have a yeah. lot of the strife in that space. Yeah, for sure. And I hear you saying too, perhaps an unintended but welcome consequence is that they end up perhaps living differently in after having this conversation. Have you noticed that from your clients and their families? Yes, I think there's this more awareness of the beauty and the joy of life now. And that fear of death feels less strong. It feels less of a pull. And I I see them and hear stories back from them because I'm still in touch with them of this reassurance and peace that we've, we've spoken our mind. And so we're living now in the moment, knowing that someone understands our wishes. And so I have seen this just like shoulders relaxed and everyone just feels a little bit reassured that their voice has been heard. Um, and so I, I do think that that is rippling out. And I think more people are also talking about it and sharing, hey, I did this great thing. We planned for my death. And, <laughs> you know, it has me talking about it. You know, I, I am 39 and I have been very clear with my husband. We, you know, talked about, we're on hikes and talking about, well, how do you want to be celebrated? And what does that look like? And where is the funeral? And how would you be buried? And what does matter to you? And so we've had these conversations. And so truthfully, even for myself, I feel so um, grateful to know that he is aware of what matters to me and it will be easy for him. It won't be a burden for him. And I've watched mm -hmm. families also feel grateful that they don't feel like they're a burden. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I hear so much liberation in there and mm -hmm. that freedom then to just live, you know, with mm -hmm. however it is that brings you joy. Now that you've painted the picture and you are clearer on that and to know too that, like you said, that burden is less. So in that time of passing, your loved ones can go through the grieving process without as much of that logistics management that can be really exhausting. And especially if you are wondering, am I meeting their expectations, which you can never really know, you know, in that space. So what a gift to offer. Mm -hmm. 
I hear in there too, that you're bringing forth what we have as the inherent self-healing capacity, right? So we believe the health is always there and it sometimes is obstructed and we're, our job is to bring that forward. And so in asking these questions, you're inviting that, right? So what does your best health, your best experience look like? How does that feel for you when you're having those conversations with your clients? Um, I love it because I think I want people to have autonomy and I, I want people to be able to say what matters and what's important to them. I've seen in the hospital so many times that we do things just because we can and nobody said, stop, what does this person want? And so to be able to give people space and time really to think about what is it that they want, what matters to them. I think that is a part of being a doctor and a part of um, bringing health uh, to people is allowing them to explore what does health look like uh, for each one of our, uh, to each one of our selves, right? It's different for everyone. And so I also find that for a lot of people, no one's asked them these questions before and uh, it brings them pause and Everyone says beforehand, well, I don't think I'm going to be able to answer these. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. And every single person has a very long answer to it. And I think we have thought about it and we do have opinions and um, we just have to be asked and asked in the right way. Mm -hmm. And given permission that there is no right answer or one answer, right? So to be able to craft it, because we do come from a space of let me get it right. Or what did they say? And what would my family want? And to be able to just say, you know, what do I want? And to pull that forward is new for a lot of people, but Mm -hmm. such an opportunity to Mm -hmm. offer that. Mm -hmm. Have you found that you're working with clients of a wide variety of ages? So, so far it's been more, um, people that are over kind of 55 and older. And so I've, what I've found is it's um, families who are really open to these conversations and know that they need to have it, but haven't started Um, families with uh, adult children who they want to express these wishes to. I've also worked worked, excuse me, a few times with individuals who are not married. And so they're kind of struggling with who their healthcare proxy is. And I've also helped them, uh, decide who the best healthcare proxy would be for them and then gone through the exercise so that person can hear, right? And a lot of times it's a friend um, or it's an aunt um, or it's someone in a church or in a temple who they feel close to, uh, but it generally has been older people. I will say though, I do think this is a conversation that we all have to have, you know, accidents happen, tragedies happen, and we want our family members to much like you said, be able to grieve our loss and not to forever have to grieve. Did I make the right choice? And the only way you know that you've made the right choice is if you've had conversations now, today, where you um, really understand what's important to your loved one. You know, the worst thing is to hear, oh my God, my dad had a heart attack or my husband had a heart attack today. I wish I would have asked him this question yesterday. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, have the conversation today. Don't wish that you would have had it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a gift and so important. So I'm curious, as we weave all of this together and look at your own experience, how you see yourself for the health of all things? 
I see myself as a facilitator, a facilitator of these conversations, a facilitator of health, a facilitator of being mindful of what's important to us and living that now and today and um, helping people get clear on what their values and their goals are for themselves and, and making sure that they're able to share it with the people who love them so that we can live great lives now. That's my goal is that we are living great lives all the days that we're alive. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and share the work that you're doing and for the work that you're doing. So important. And I hope it continues to grow and expand and have a wide reaching audience. Please tell everyone where they can find you to explore this work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you for having me today and for this opportunity. I am so grateful for it. People can find me at the acpcoach.com. That website is currently being built. So if you show up and nothing's there, it is coming uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, can reach out to me there. And I would love to help anyone have this conversation with uh, someone that they love. Perfect. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing how everything continues to grow for you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Osteopathic Life, Conversations for the Health of All Things. Please take a moment to like, rate, and review the podcast. And if you would like to be featured as a guest or know someone you'd like to nominate as a guest for an episode, please let me know at thisosteopathiclife at gmail.com. Visit the website at thisosteopathiclife.com or visit me on Instagram and Facebook at This Osteopathic Life. Thank you so much for listening.